it's also a really nice to actually be asked to come along and to speak as a part of a series. Um, the joke is often made that preachers like myself who do a lot of itinerant type speaking only have two sermons. Um, I disagree with that idea because I've never found the need to have a second sermon. Um, so we're going to be looking at um, Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 16 together. Many years ago, my friend and colleague, uh, Professor David Starling from Bowling College, introduced the Sermon on the Mount by describing two little creatures that stand for different ways in which we Christians get our relationship with the non-Christian world wrong. The first of the little creatures that Professor Starling described is the hermit crab. You might have learned something about them when you were a child at school, or you might have even seen them when you were on the beach on holidays. I mean, the crabs weren't on holidays, but you were. They are the little crabs with the soft ab abdomens that go off and find themselves a shell from some other dead creature and then crawl into a hole and hide away in that so that they won't risk getting attacked by a predator. They relate to the world around them by hiding away from the world in a little shell. It's not hard to see the parallel with some of those that we know who are Christians. We can be so afraid of the non-Christian world that we hide ourselves away from it and we have almost nothing to do with it no non-Christian friends, no experience with what's going on in the world, no real understanding of how the world works, no attempt to influence or impact the lives of the people around us, no effort to really take the gospel of Jesus Christ out into the world, just a desperate effort to hide away and to protect ourselves from any contact with the world or from any danger that the world might pose to us. Some Christian parents with the best of intentions bring their kids up this way. They try to instill within their children a solid Christian conviction and a faith in Jesus Christ, but they hide them away from the world. They shelter them from the impact of the world. They put their efforts into sheltering and protecting and to hiding their kids from whatever might, from whatever contact might, might happen with the world, from any difficulty or disturbing or dangerous situation that might arise that would impact their faith. And so as the children grow up, many of them become a bit like hermit crabs, just trying to find bigger and bigger shells to hide away in. I've come across, when I was in the youth ministry, I'd come across a lot of children like this who would end up going to university. And even in the context of university, they would try to find shells to hide away in, but it wouldn't work. In fact, what would happen is that eventually they would swim out of the shell with their soft underbelly exposed and get gobbled up or eaten by a predator because that's the way of the hermit crab. The second little creature that Professor Starling described, which some of us can be like, and I'm often tempted to be like myself, is the chameleon. You know what the chameleon is like? It's that little lizard that is able to change the pigments in its skin to blend in with 
whatever color or whatever surrounding it happens to be in, in any particular time. So it can be green one moment, brown the next. It can even look like rocks or a sand colored pigment. It takes a few minutes for the, for the hormones in their skin to work, but it doesn't take very long for the pigments to have changed and the skin to have altered its color. They are really very difficult to spot. I hardly need to explain the parallel, do I? It's exactly the way many of us Christians can be tempted to relate to the world. In one group of people, we act and we dress and we talk a certain kind of way. In another group of people, we're completely different. Not just the clothes we wear or the voice that we put on, but the way in which we act, the words that we use, even the kinds of opinions that we express. We're chameleons. We censor out those bits of our conversation or our behaviors or our attitudes that make us stand out, that make us look different. We change who we are and the way we behave in order to fit in with those who are around us so that we can blend in and not be different. Professor Starling went on to say that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us a better way. He speaks to his disciples, to the small group that he has called to follow him and has drawn with him up onto the side of the mountain. He speaks to them and he tells them about what their relationship should be like with the world around them. Our great temptation as Christians is to relate to the world in a way that reflects the chameleon. We try to protect ourselves by blending in or we go the way of the hermit crab and try to protect ourselves by hiding away. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers a different way. Jesus offers us his vision for our lives together and the way in which we relate to the world. In Matthew 5, verses 1 to 2, Jesus is surrounded by huge crowds. He climbs a beautiful hillside overlooking a large freshwater lake and delivers the, delivers the longest speech recorded in the Gospels. In this beautiful setting, with exquisite views over the lake, Jesus delivers an astonishing vision of a new people who embrace a radical, world-transforming way of life in the world. This speech is a stunning description of Jesus' vision for life, discipleship, ethics, prayer, reconciliation, humility, hospitality, money, justice, and community. It includes the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer, and it leaves his audience, both ancient and modern, shocked, surprised, stunned, uneasy. Jesus calls his church to embrace a new, radical, ethical, alternative way of life together and in the world. It's a departure from the way of the hermit crab. It's in contrast to the way of the chameleon. It stands in deep contrast with all of the ways that have been given to the people of God by the Pharisees and Sadducees. It fulfills and interprets or reinterprets 
many of the aspects of the old covenant and the Ten Commandments and soaks this vision in prayer, love and grace. Again, this isn't a picture of the individual righteous life. This is a social ethic, a vision of a new, radical, righteous, transformed, Jesus imitating community. This is a vision of a community of disciples who pursue lives together and in the world and their witness to him to a new humanity, as Paul puts it, and to the age to come. Philip Yancey says that on the Sermon on the Mount, we, we see absolute ideals and absolute grace. This isn't another form of legalism, but a vision of a righteous people utterly reliant on and empowered by God's grace. This is a vision of a people who mirror in their life together the nature of God. Jesus calls his people to pursue God's ethics and morality with great enthusiasm and dedication, but to realize that they're only able to do this. They're only able to achieve any kind of righteousness by God's power and by God's grace. As Philip Yancey puts it, the Sermon on the Mount forces us to recognize the great distance between God and us and any attempt to reduce that distance by somehow moderating its demands misses the point altogether. The worst tragedy would be to turn the Sermon on the Mount into another form of legalism. It should rather put an end to all legalism. The Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. Murderers and temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, Pharisees and Bible teachers, pastors and disciples, thieves and covetors. We all stand on level ground before God. So what kind of life together in the world does Jesus call us to embrace in complete dependence on his grace and on the power of his spirit? In Matthew 5 verses 1 to 12, Jesus describes the postures, the outlook and the behaviors of the blessed. And by blessed, we mean the happy and God pleasing people. These people display a compelling, distinct ethic. This ethic is personal and social. It's rooted and grounded in the character of God. The Beatitudes should move God's people to be like God and dependent entirely on God's grace for this to be so. The Beatitudes are a kind of prologue outlining Jesus' vision for his kingdom, for his church for his disciples, for the new humanity. This way of life together in the world is then made more explicit in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As my friend John Dixon says, the Beatitudes are a statement of future fact. Those who are poor in the spirit now will receive the kingdom of God now and in the future. Those who are meek now will inherit the earth now and 
in the future. Those who are peacemakers now will be called the children of God now and in the future. The Beatitudes speak of the already and the not yet dimensions of God's age to come. We are already peacemakers. We are already redeemed. We already have the kingdom of God. We are already living into the future, but we don't have those things in their fullness yet. We live for the future age in the present because the kingdom was brought into this world in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom will bring complete peace. We seek that peace now. The age to come will bring final justice. We ask for that justice and we act for that justice now. The kingdom will bring full reconciliation. We exercise the ministry of reconciliation now. The age to come will make love supreme. We love each other and we love our enemies now. The kingdom will bring free, will finally free the poor and the oppressed. We seek their liberation now. The age to come will bring final dignity to all people, regardless of gender, ethnicity, class, age, or race. And so we honor, we dignify all people now. You get the idea. In Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, Jesus provides three remarkable images of the church, salt, light, and a city. Jesus confronts his disciples with a missionary description of the church. The church in mission is the salt of the earth the light of the world, and a city set on the hill. The church's purpose is to let its light shine before people, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The purpose of the church's missionary nature is the worship and the glorification of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Eugene Peterson puts our call to be salt light in a city on a hill this way. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. Now that I put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to be open with God, to open up themselves to God, this generous Father that we have in heaven. I love the image of the church being salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth, light that brings out the God colors of the world. 
and an open house that shows God's extravagant welcome and generosity. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If it is no longer good for anything, if it is, if it is not salty, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the salt of the earth. Choose to be salt. Salt preserves, seasons, flavors, purifies. We are salt when we glorify the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our mission, worship, faith, hope, truth, justice, and love. We are salt when we reject a hermit crab-like or chameleon-like vision of the church and instead become the just, missionary, loving, ethical, and life-giving, Christ-centered church that Jesus envisaged on the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people who put uh, put a light on a lamp and then put that lamp under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand that it might give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. So choose to be light. Light illuminates, reveals, and dispels the darkness. The church is light when it does good deeds, healing and liberating and redemptive deeds. It's light when it's being and faith and deeds bring glory to the Father. The church is light when it participates in God's redemptive, healing, loving, just mission and life in the world. You are a city on the hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You are a city set on a hill. So choose to be a city on a hill. This means that we are an alternative, a countercultural, a radical and prophetic apostolic movement. We have a distinct culture a distinct politic, a distinct social existence. We're a people gathered together from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are in the world, but we are distinct from the world. We are within the world, and we live for the sake of the world. To be this kind of alternative city and culture, we must renew our life together, our worship, our discipleship and mission. We must pursue the revitalization of our churches so that they are distinct. And by distinct, I mean an alternative people called together around the gospel and life of Jesus Christ for the sake of the healing and renewal and redemption of the world. As God's church, we have a distinct identity and our life together is formed by story. It's this story that shapes 
our mission and our service in the world. What is the story? It's the story of biblical Israel. It's the story of Jesus Christ. It's a grand and cosmic story that began in creation, that went through the story of biblical Israel into the person and message and work of the Jewish Jesus of Pentecost, the formation of a chosen people, of the redemption and restoration of all things in Christ. It's a story of the rule and reign and healing of all people, of all creation, of the whole planet in Jesus Christ. This grand story is at the center of our life together, the center of our discipleship community message, our politics, our mission, our ethics, our love. The church is a community formed by story, and it's the story of Jesus. We're a diverse people made up of every tribe, nation, people, language that shows the extraordinary diversity in unity, unity in diversity that can only be found in Jesus Christ. What is this community? It's a community of salt, of light, a community on a hill. God calls us to remember and to tell the story of Jesus Christ, to be what God is calling the world to be in Jesus Christ, serving the world, loving the world, seeking its renewal and salvation and transformation, fully engaged in the world, not to be like the world, not hiding away from the world, not being a chameleon or a hermit crab, but rather being engaged with the world for the sake of the world and its redemption in Christ. We witness to Jesus as a peaceable, virtuous, loving, serving, reconciling community. I finish with the way that the Meeting House in Toronto in Canada puts it. They say this, rules, rituals, religion, Really? We think Jesus came to show us a different way, a better way, not the way of rules, not the way of rituals, not the way of religion. We believe that when you see Jesus without the religious baggage we've historically put around him, you'll find someone undeniably life-changing and worth following. Everything we read about Jesus in the Bible paints a clear picture of a revolutionary and radical who intended on turning our way of thinking upside down and inside out. Jesus wasn't interested in creating a new religious system of do's and don'ts, wrongs and rights, rights and, ru and rules. Rather, Jesus' irreligious message is that we can only find true peace and wholeness when we embrace a love-based relationship with God and others and even our enemies. We believe that in order to truly see Jesus, grasp his message and follow him, we need to reject the lens given to us by religion, even the Christian religion, and become a community who opens up our Bibles regularly with fresh eyes and relive the accounts of those who first followed Jesus. Let's choose together to be a people who do our best 
to discover Jesus for who he truly is. What does it mean to be and to live as salt in our society? Well, Jesus spells it out on the Sermon on the Mount. He spells out the righteousness that is beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees. That isn't defined by the rules and rituals and regulations that religion offers us. That goes deeper than that. And so Jesus talks about how do we deal with anger and disputes? How do we relate to each other sexually and ethically? How do we honor our promises? The way we respond when someone does us wrong. The way we, would, we treat our enemies. The way we give to the needy without wanting anything or anyone to give back to us, to be a generous people. It's about living a life that is consistently different from the way that we would have lived if we hadn't known Jesus. It's about being different in our hearts, not just in our outward behavior. That's what it means to live as a salt of the earth. It just means being people who are prepared to be different from the way of the world around us. What does it mean to live as salt and light and a city on a hill? It's to live as people who are visibly followers of Jesus. It's about believing with all of your heart that Jesus died in your place on the cross, rose again to a new life, and is the one who is Lord over the whole earth. It's about believing with all of your heart, with the result that you're not afraid to be quite open and public about the fact that you love Jesus, you follow Jesus, you rely on Jesus alone for your salvation. Today, let's live as people who witness to God's justice, love, mercy, and truth, being salt, light, and a city on a hill, pointing others towards Jesus, glorifying God, making a difference in the world, by the power of Christ and his spirit and gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us pray. Father, we rely totally on you. Make us salt, seasoning the world. Make us light, bringing out the God colors in the world. Make us a city on a hill that witnesses to Christ and Christ's gospel alone. Help us not to be chameleons who blend in or hermit crabs that hide away, but rather salt, light, and a city on a hill. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I've invited us to consider three responses. I say, what does it mean to invite God to help you refuse to go the way of the chameleon by blending in or the way of the hermit crab by hiding away, instead, to ask God to make you a shining witness to Jesus. What are some ways you can shine for Jesus, keeping open house, being generous with your life, opening up to others, prompting people to be open to God, and finally, prayerfully commit yourself to being salt, light, and a city on a hill, pointing people towards God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you.